Ladies and gentlemen, the undermining of parents is a real thing in our present age. We will discuss. Plus, Cuban Americans are giving Americans a lesson in economics. Oh, you won't believe what's happening there. And we are coming to the end of our study in the life of David. Say it ain't so, Tim. It is. And I'm so sad, but season four is almost over. And I'm so glad you're here as we finish it off. This is your favorite night of the week, The Deep End with Tim Hatch. I am beloved. The men they call David, the son of a Jesse, the John that slay it, the heart full of king, three stones in a sling. I'm dancing my clothes off to the sound of the beat. Ah, welcome to the deep end with Tim Hatch. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the deep end on Tim Hatch Live, and I'm so glad you are here. Lots to talk about, lots to get to, and we are almost at the end of season four. In fact, including this episode, we only have two episodes left. And I'm sad to see the Life of David study go, but it's been wonderful, hasn't it? Um, let me know in the comments below. Have you enjoyed it? Has it been good? What have you learned? Is there something that really just stuck out to you about the Life of David study? I would love to hear that from you. And you know what? Let's do something fun as well in the comments below. Let me know your favorite Bible translation. You guys know what mine is. It's the ESV. I make no bones about that, but let me know yours. I always read the comments. Love your comments. Thanks for letting me know. What's your favorite Bible verse is? Okay, also, make sure you check us out at Tim Hatch Live on YouTube. That is the place you want to go. YouTube.com slash Tim Hatch Live is where you want to be uh, to subscribe so that you know when we pick up with season five. Season five will be coming soon and more about that later. Also, our social media channels have grown. We now have TikTok at Tim Hatch Live. Check that out all across all social medias. It's always either at Tim Hatch Live or forward slash Tim Hatch Live. So that's what's happening in Tim Hatch Live land. Oh, no, no. Actually, there's one more thing. Two days from now, two days from now, we actually have our third biweekly episode of 10 questions. 10 questions with Tim. One question spot left for this week. One question spot left for this Thursday. And if you're afraid you might not get it in, if you submit a question, don't worry about that. Just keep submitting your questions because we just store them up for the next episode. And I'm so thankful for all the questions that have already been submitted. I look forward to seeing you guys this Thursday at noon during lunch. So lots to talk about, like I said, but we're going to get into probably your favorite segment, my favorite segment. I love it. Let's talk about what's going on in the world. A lot of crazy it's time for Deep End News. Deep End News. News and views that don't make us news. Deep End News. I'm going to do a um, social commentary, if you don't mind, this time on the Deep End. And uh, Deep End News will now have, on occasion, something I call a Deep End commentary. Okay? The undermining of the American parent. American parents are under attack. Well, maybe the Western parents, you know, Western civilization's parents are under attack. I think that it goes uh, two ways. In large part, American parents have abdicated their God-given responsibility to shape and form their children and, it ha- and, it ha- and have handed it over to the state or uh, to babysitters or to social workers or to therapists. 
And secondly, uh, the breakdown of the family, the high divorce rates from the boomer generation and the Gen X generation, my generation, is also contributing to this problem. Consequently, the younger generation is leading the older generation down a rabbit hole of disaster. I, I want to give you a couple of stats. In all 50 states, including the District of Columbia, uh, minors as young as 12 are able to get their own health care without parental consent. Uh, particularly concerning the treatment of sexually transmitted infections. So your 12-year-old could have a sexually transmitted disease and not even have to tell you about it, and they can get treatment about it. Likewise, uh, certain states and the District of Columbia allow minors to receive contraceptive services without notifying parents. And this stuff gets pretty scary pretty quickly. For instance, in Seattle, a high school sparked outrage because they've now decided to allow uh, children as young as 11 get IUD contraceptives. 11 years old getting an IUD from their high school. And it's kind of like a game of limbo. How low can we go? Well, not to be outdone, Chicago, uh, in in the Sun-Times, this report came out that children are going to be receiving condoms as young as 10 years old, children as young as 10 getting a condom from their school system. Now in London, again, this is why I say in the cultural West or the Western civilization of the world, in London, a Christian mother had to take the school to court because she didn't want her son, her four-year-old son to take part in a gay pride parade and they fought her and forced her son to take part and now she's going to court to fight it or she was going to court, this is quite a while back. But anyway, this is what's going on in London and if you're trafficking in London now, is going to happen in America later. And then of course, Newsweek, masks are back and they should be mandatory in schools, says the Academy, American Academy of Pediatrics. So good thing all those vaccines are working, right? Because everybody still needs to wear a mask, I guess. And there's a rising increase in the Delta variant. And then after the Delta, the Epsilon variant, and then the Gamma variant, and the Kappa, Lambda, Damda, whatever variant is going to forever lock us into this context of perpetual fear. Anyway, back to the deep end commentary on the undermining of the American parent. Listen, when parents don't parent, someone has to raise your kids. And sadly, that someone is usually an obtuse and misguided governmental system. This is not the way it's supposed to be, ladies and gentlemen, and is getting weirder and weirder. The government is coming for your kids. Uh, Enemies of your faith are coming for your kids. Crazies are coming for your kids. I want to actually give you that phrase specifically, coming for your children. Do you know why? Because that phrase was the title of a song belted out by the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus from a YouTube video titled, quote, a message from the gay community, end quote, performed by the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. I have for you, for your viewing enjoyment on the deep end, a song that's sure to freak you out. Check this out. We're coming for them. We're coming for your children. We're coming for them. We're coming for your children. We're coming for them. Your children. Yikes. Please let that be the end of your speech. Ow! Yeah, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. That, that. That's crazy. They're coming for your children. Well, at least they're honest, right? What would happen if a Christian 
movement of men created a creepy video on YouTube singing about how they're coming for your children. How about this? How about replace this grid with a bunch of Catholic priests and see how the culture responds? Hmm? What do you think what would happen? The point is they are coming for your children. They're not just the gay men's chorus in San Francisco. Heck, they are honest about it. It's, it's the, the more subtle, the more you know, subversive forces in our world that are coming for our children. Parents, be parents. Christians, I'm talking to you. Be parents. I, I, I remind you of the word of God from Deuteronomy chapter 4. It says, only take care in verse 9. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. In other words, take care of your faith. Take care of what God has done for you and through you and in you, and then make them known to who? To your children and your children's children, like parents and grandparents, partner together to pass the faith on. Verse 10, he says, How on the day that you stood before the Lord, your God, a horror of this Lord said to me, Gather the people that I that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days of the, that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children also. This is the responsibility of God's parents. And if you are a parent, it's time to get involved and become aware of what is being what is being done to take your children captive to the lies and the corrosive untruths of this age. I bring you back to a book we discussed a few episodes ago, Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage. Remember we talked about this irreversible damage, the transgender craze seducing our daughters? Well, National uh, Review reports this, that the American Booksellers Association has now apologized for promoting this book as a violent transgender <laughs> transgender book and in a statement on wednesday uh the aba the american booksellers association apologized for promoting abigail schreier's book calling its oversight in releasing it a serious violent incident this is so nuts when words become violence this is really nuts. This is how totalitarianism starts to impede upon our freedoms. Well, the ABA sent Shire's title. This is what happened. They sent Shire's title along with 700 other um, books, uh, uh, several others to 750 bookstores in its July white box mailing. Uh, this is from Publishers Weekly. And it says, quote, an anti-trans book, this is in their apology, was included in our July mailing to members. This is a serious violent incident that goes against ABA's ends policies, values, and everything we believe and support. It's inexcusable, the statement read. And later they say, we apologize to the trans community for this terrible incident and the, pa and the pain we have caused them. We also apologize to the LGBTQIA, the alphabet people, community at large, and to our book selling community, it added. Why is this book such a threat, though? Why is this book such a threat? Do you know why this book is a threat? Because this book undercuts the agenda to undercut parental authority in the home. That's why this book is a threat. That's why this book is a threat. And by the way, this book reveals just how dangerous it is becoming. Parents, you got to read the book. Uh, you got to read the book. Put it on the screen again. You got you to read the book and understand what she is revealing. In, in, in a particular chapter, she talks about a therapist uh, out of Boston, New York, named Randy Kaufman. Uh, Randy Kaufman is a, quote, expert in gender identity and gender expression. And she works with kids age 10 and up at the Gender and Family Project of the prestigious Ackerman Institute for the Family in New York City. 
Uh, she has determined gender non-conforming youth fitness for medical intervention at Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard Medical School. And in 2004, she founded the Transgender Health Program at Fenway Health in Boston to provide mental health and medical care to transgender adults. Anyway, what this woman suggests about parents and trans kids is alarming, if not, if not downright frightening. So what does Randy Kaufman believe about transgender identified teenagers and what they need from their parents and therapists? You'd never guess. Here, here's what she says. The single most important factor is to start with family support and acceptance. So if your 10-year-old comes and says, I'm a boy, your 10-year-old girl comes and says, I'm a boy, you just have to accept that, period, end of story. Your child is now in charge, okay? Dr. Kaufman said there are studies that show that adolescent children who are supported by the family, the suicide rate drops dramatically and mental health increases uh, and that gets borne out over time. So adolescent children, you need to believe them, parents. You need to listen to your kids. Your kids are right. You're not right. Your kids are right. And then they talk, of course, about suicide. And one of the famous lines of the transgender movement is, would you rather have a dead son or a living daughter? In other words, your son wants to be a woman or a girl. Just turn him into a girl so that he'll stay alive. This is keeping him alive. I mean, parents, wake up. Wake up. Kids threatening suicide is as old as kids. Seriously. I used to do it to my parents when they made me clean my room. I'm going to kill myself. I mean, come on. This is, though, the reason that we have such chaos in our world, because the younger members of our cultural tribe are now in charge of the older members of our cultural tribe. And this is not going to end well, because there has to be standards. There has to be, there has to be common sense, and your children don't have common sense. I said on Sunday to my church, um, when I was nine, I felt like a dragon. My parents did not come along and say, oh, you're right. Let's, let's raise him as a dragon. No, no. They, they told me to get over it, right? They told me to grow up. Anyway, um, uh, Abigail Schreier, in, in the chapter on parental authority being undermined by the transgender movement, she says this, imagine if we treated anorexics this way. Imagine a girl, five foot six tall, 95 pounds, approaches a therapist and says, I know I'm fat. I just know I'm fat. Please call me fatty. Imagine the APA encourages doctors to modify their understanding of what constitutes fat to include this emaciated girl. Imagine the APA encouraged therapists to respond to such patients. If you feel fat, then you are. I support your lived experience. Okay, fatty. Like, really? I mean, it's true. Like, so, so whatever feelings that a child has, we are supposed to approve and follow. This, again, is the undermining of the American parent, or again, the Western civilization parent. And, and then it goes on. What about, what about those parents who can't get these ideas through their thick skulls? You know, those intolerant bigots. What about, say, religious Christians or Muslims or Jews who insist on gender binary merely because people have done so for thousands of years? And here's what Kaufman says. I tell them that we can't change the mind, and so we have to change the body. That, that's sort of the nutshell. I would let them know that if someone identifies as white, it's pretty rare that they would change their mind. We have known that we can't socialize someone into or out of gender. And again, this is why Abigail's book, Abigail Schreier's book, is so dangerous, because she talks about Lisa Pittman's research from Brown University, which shows and exposes the fact that, yes, indeed, gender dysphoria is socialized into many, many prepubescent t-shirt teenagers through YouTube and other uh, media, social media outlets. It's why this book has to be apologized for by the American Booksellers Association because, because this book is a danger to the fundamental undermining of parental authority. One of the top 10 in God's list, right? Number four, I think, on the list, or number five, honor your parents. And then Ephesians 5 or 6, I'm sorry, 
Children, obey your parents. Even Jesus himself, who knew he was God and was in the temple listening to you and teaching the teachers of Judaism, his parents come and take him home. And the Bible says that he went and went went home and, and was submissive to them. We need to fight for our kids ladies and gentlemen. And maybe if you're in the public school system, you need to fight for other people's kids and you need to fight for the rights of parents to be parents of those kids. I had a woman in my church come up to me this past Sunday and she works in the public education system for Cranston, Rhode Island. She told me that she spoke up at one of these staff meetings where they were discussing gender you know, spectrums and the gingerbread man and all that kind of stuff or the gingerbread person, whatever, to discuss gender and all this chaos. She spoke up. She talked about God. She said her piece. Did anybody listen? Probably not, but she spoke up. She said something. And ladies and gentlemen, maybe that's all we need to do. Just say something. Like, like You can disagree with us, but we can say what we believe is true. On another take on all this issue, I bring you to Isaiah chapter 3. And here's why I bring you to Isaiah chapter 3. Because when the Lord was pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel— and the deceptions of Israel's false prophets, which were very similar to what we are seeing today, were in, uh, in large quantity and people were following the false prophets. The Lord said, you know what I'm going to do? Here's what I'm going to do to hand you over. I'm going to remove the structures that make you a safe nation. Here's what it says, Isaiah 3. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taken away from Jerusalem and Judah, support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man, the soldier, the judge, the prophet. The diviner, the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, and the skilled magician. These people I'm taking away. I'm going to take all the things that you think make you a strong nation away. I'm going to corrupt this stuff. Notice who's doing it. <laughs> the Lord is doing it. The Lord is handing his people over for judgment because they did not bow to him and, and follow him as Lord. And then later in that passage, look at this line. Verse 4 says, and I, this is the judgment of God on Israel, ancient Israel, and I will, make, I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them, and the people will oppress one another, everyone his fellow and everyone his neighbor. Is that not what we're seeing right now? The youth will be insolent to the elder. When the youth are insolent to the elder, remember the Bible says this is the judgment of God. And then the despised will be insolent to the honorable. So those who stand for truth and honorable activity and honorable parenthood and honorable lifestyles, they will be insolent. Uh, they will be treated insolently by the despised. God judges the nation of Israel by making children rulers. Later on in the chapter, verse 12, it says, My people, infants are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guys mislead you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. Don't miss this. Don't miss this because this is good Christian theology. This is good biblical theology. God judges a nation by making the young lord over the old. And, and in many respects, through many different streams in our present context, that is exactly what is happening in America. Here's the problem, kids, those of you who are listening, if you are listening, it's not your fault. Your parents didn't do their job. <laughs> Neither did society for the last 50 to 60 years. Instead of disciplining you, they praised you and worshiped you. Instead of holding you accountable for your act actions and teaching you about winning and losing, they just handed you trophies and focused on you having a good self-esteem esteem, no matter how evil you really were. See, today's American children have been coddled. They've been listened to by their elders for decades, and now they are in full-fledged revolt 
against everything that makes it possible for them to enjoy the freedoms and the wealth that America has. I'm talking, of course, about this present call for socialism in our country. The young people are in fully in favor, not fully, but in large part in favor of socialism. I think it's more than a third of millennials want socialism in our country. And last week, Cubans gave us a gift. Freedom-loving protesters took to the streets and demanded liberty, freedom from the economic restraints oppressing them under communism. And, and part of their protest, I don't know if you can see it in the screen there, let me enlarge it. Part of their protest was, guess what? Can you see it? Do you see what I see? The American flag. In, a, in several locations in this picture, the American flag shows up on the streets of Cuba as they protest communism. Isn't it kind of interesting? As Cubans protest for freedom, the symbol of freedom that they use is the American flag, the same flag that is disparaged by our young and by our sports stars right now. I have another video. This is a video of them marching in the streets of Cuba. There it is. Okay, because I think the last picture actually was Miami. This is actually in Cuban, in Havana, and they are marching in lockstep with the American flag, calling out for freedom. Freedom, yes. Remember freedom? Freedom is a wonderful thing, yes? Freedom. It seems that the people of Cuba appreciate our freedom more than we do. But that's not how the New York Times took it. No, from their official Twitter account, you won't believe this, from their official Twitter account, the New York Times says, quote, shouting freedom and other anti-government slogans. <laughs> Just let that hang there in the air. Shouting freedom and other anti-government slogans. Hundreds of Cubans took to the streets in cities around the country on Sunday to protest food and medicine shortages. In a remarkable eruption of discontent not seen in nearly 30 years. Did you get that? Like, freedom is an anti-government slogan. So, New York Times going full long shanks here. The trouble with Scotland is that it's full of Scots. And then this from Nicole Hannah-Jones, who we talked about last week. She said, this is the author of the 1619 Project, quote, this is a couple years ago, Cuba has the least inequality between black and white people of any place really in the hemisphere and that's largely due to socialism which i'm sure no one wants to hear yeah they're equal they're equally poor i mean that's why they want to come to america that's why they're flooding into miami right now and and have been for decades in this country of course another uh recording was unearthed from nicole hannah jones stating that cuba cuba's socialist accomplishments uh in education uh and literacy uh, were to be admired. <sighs> you have to go to Ivy League schools to be this misinformed nowadays. Now, I know what some young people are going to say because I've heard it and I know, and I hope that you have this maybe in your thoughts right now because I'd like to address it, right? Here's the thought. Here's the phrase. But we've never tried it in America. Let's do it. Let's, let us Americans be socialists. I'm sure we could do what every other country can't do right. Of course, we're not exceptional. Right. So we're not exceptional, but we could do socialism right. That's a lie. Actually, we have tried socialism in America. Socialism was actually what the settlers, the first settlers embraced. Did you know this? 
Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, this is from The American Story, a book that I'm reading right now, which you probably want to get your hands on. This is by David Barton and his son, Tim Barton, and it is a phenomenal book. If you are into giving your kids summer reading that is assigned by parents and not schools, get yourself this book and make sure you buy it and give it to your kids and then discuss it afterwards. It is phenomenal. And they, they talk about that at the Plymouth Plantation and in the Jamestown Colony, both original settler, settler, settlements in America tried socialism. So, so here's what it says from the book, The American Story. Uh, the fruits of their labor were put into a common pot and split among all. It didn't take long for those inclined to laziness to find that this system uh, suited them well. They could receive provisions without working. The result was inefficiency, non-productivity, and injustice. According to Governor William Bradford of Massachusetts, those who promoted socialism thought they were wiser than God. But experience proved they were not. Jamestown, this is Jamestown, Virginia, had earlier adopted socialism and it had been a disaster there as well. Their governor, John Smith, combated that failing system by citing the biblical principle that if anyone is not willing to work, he is not to eat. In Plymouth, however, when the pilgrims learned the Bible's teachings, they embraced them, including that of 1 Timothy 5.8, which states, if anyone does not provide for his own and especially those of his own household... Again, again, parents, children. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Applying this principle saved the, co the colony. Applying this principle saved the colonists. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, newsflash, things they won't tell you in public schools anymore. Socialism, socialism has been tried in this country and it has failed. You, 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 you've got to understand this. Uh, you've got to know your history and get in touch with what's true because lies are being perpetrated upon the young and they're stealing the hearts and the minds of young children through the educational system of this country. Uh, in fact, William uh, Bradford, the governor of Massachusetts, wrote about what happened when they turned to the free market system. Don't fall for the term capitalist. It's the, called the free market system. You buy what you want to buy in your freedom and you sell what you want to sell in your freedom. And here's what he says. This had very good success. This is right from Plymouth Plantation, written uh, or published 1856 from William Bla Bradford. It says, this had very good success, free market system, for it made all hands very industrious. So as uh, much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means the governor or any other could use and gave far better content. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to set corn, which would be, which before would allege fake or pretend weakness and inability. In other words, the people who were lazy stopped being lazy when it turned into a free market system. Now, I understand there are inequities in our country, but there's always going to be inequities. You know what? Read the Bible. The Bible says that this earth is not fair. This earth will not be fair. Even the kingdom of God is not fair. When, when Jesus talks about the parables, he, he says, look, uh, I hired some at nine, I hired some at 10, and I hired some at four, and I gave them all what I wanted to give them, the same amount. Oh, and then he talks about the parable of the talents, and he gave one five, and he gave one two, and he gave one one. And so he distributes talents unfairly. Oh, and by the way, guess what else? Guess where else is going to be unfair? Heaven. Heaven is going to be unfair. Do you know why? Because you're going to be rewarded for the, for the work that you did in the kingdom, and it is not going to be everybody gets a trophy. It's going to be you are going to be paid back for what you put your hands to in the kingdom of God. The free market system is the only way to inspire people to work hard and, and, and earn their own living. It really is. Do you know who truly understands that free markets work on behalf of those who work hard for them? Do you know who truly understands this? Democratic socialists. Yeah, democratic socialists who criticize the free markets, like congressperson 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yes, AOC. This is from uh, Reuters, and the title of the article is Branding the U.S. Left. AOC makes a push into political merchandise, and the article is all about how she has decided to start uh, selling merch on her website. AOC merch. (laughs) She reports she is investing heavily in her online store, selling T-shirts, sweatshirts, and other merchandise with her name AOC. Initials are slogans, including tax the rich and fight for our future, aimed at both fundraising and building second term law, the second-term lawmakers' uh, profile nationally. Her campaign paid merchandise firm Financial Innovations $1.4 million in the first six months of 2021, according to campaign disclosures to the Federal Election Commission last week. Then it says this, merchandise sales count as campaign contributions, but it's not clear how much uh, it's bringing in. Uh, Folly, Folly, I don't know who that is, said Orcasio Cortez campaign could be making a 50% profit or more on its sales. You know what, AOC? Good for you. Good for you. Embrace that free market system. By the way, if you want one of her sweatshirts, it's going to cost you $58. This is from her website. $58. A sweatshirt that says... Tax the rich costs you $58. Um, wow. Yeah. Way to go, AOC. Free market system working for you. I mean, I don't disparage that. Go for it. Make yourself some money. That's called freedom. That's called freedom. Now, you can go over to AOC's shop and find yourself that merchandise, or you could head over to Tim Hatch Live and get yourself some authentic Tim Hatch Live and Deep End gear for much cheaper. You will notice, by the way, many of you are getting the gear because some of it's out of stock and a lot of it's low stock, but you can get yourself a shirt like this one. You can get yourself a, a, a tumbler. I think they actually are back in stock. Get over to TimHatchLive.com. Buy yourself some meaningful merchandise and be happy. Yeah. Bye now. Okay, that was the cheesiest ever. <laughs> cheesiest ever plug from my merchandise. Anyway, finishing up this segment, um, as Thomas Sowell tweeted, advice to the young, you don't have to listen to anybody. You can learn everything from your own personal experience. Of course, you'll be at least 50 years old by the time you know what you need to know at age 25. In other words, the point is, young people, Listen to those who came before you. It's going to pay off for you. It's going to benefit your life. They have experience. They are wise. Don't follow the course of this age that undermines parental authority. And parents, for the love of heaven and for the love of God, would you please be parents, invest in your kids. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the deep end news. And it is totally totally going to apply to everything we're going to talk about today in the life of David. But before we go there, make sure you hit that like button. Make sure you smash that subscribe button. Give the beard some love and make sure you're also hitting the notification bell. Ring, ring, so that you will always be notified when we go live. With all that in mind, ladies and gentlemen, let's get into the life of David. Today's title in the life of David is this, The King of Peace is Coming Soon. The King of Peace is Coming Soon. And um, 
Again, as I said in the beginning of the episode, this is going to shock you, but we only have two episodes left on the deep end. Yep. We only have two episodes left on, well, not the deep end, but the season that we're in, season four. And we're concluding on David's amazing life. It's been a wonderful journey. Again, let me know in the comments, what was the big takeaway from this study for you? I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope I've done my job. I enjoy studying the Bible with you every week. So we have this week and next week on Life of David, and then I'm going on vacation, and then I'm going to Peru uh, for some missions work, and then I'm going to be coming back with you again in August. Now, remember, for season five on Tim Hatch Live, youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live, we are breaking up the deep end the news and commentary section from the Bible study section. So I give you, coming this August, a deep dive with yours truly, with Tim, Wednesday night. So you will be able to see me on Tuesday nights on the deep end, the normal deep end, talking about news and commentary. And then you'll be able to see me on Wednesday nights talking about the Bible. And uh, guess what? We're going to be getting into with the Bible next season. I'm so excited. Starting in August, we're going to be getting into the book of Romans. Uh, there is no more important book in the, in the Bible than the book of Romans. And so that will be season five. Okay, so let's get into this. The, the King of Peace is coming soon, and we are going to head over in our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 1. So I hope you're there. 1 Kings chapter 1, we finished off first, uh, 2 Samuel last week, and we're getting into the end of David's reign. 1 Kings chapter 1 is a very long chapter. We're going to skip a couple of sections, but what's we're going, what we're going to discuss is the fact that, that David has to hand over the kingdom to someone. Which child is going to get the kingdom? Now, what has happened is God has already revealed to David, and this is not actually in the Samuel's account, it's actually in the Chronicles account of David's life, that Solomon is to be king. But here's the thing about Solomon. Solomon is 10th in line to the kingdom. In other words, he's David's 10th oldest son. Uh, and yet he's going to be the one that God chooses to make king. Now, a couple things. Why I call this the king of peace is because Solomon's name means peaceable. He is the king of peace. It actually comes from the, the, the Hebrew word shalom. So the king of peace is coming. And all season long, we've looked at David as a picture of Jesus, right? We've, we've looked at him as a picture of Jesus in our present age. That is that, that um, when we are studying David, we are looking at what we are living in right now. Jesus is the true king under the auspices of Saul's kingdom, and then he establishes his church, and that's the kingdom of David, and that's what is happening now. That kingdom expands, and that kingdom has its difficulties and its challenges. The Philistines are still around us, attacking us, and we're going to have to fight, and we've talked about that. But more importantly, here's the reality. The kingdom of David comes to an end, or comes to a, not end, comes to a fruition in the, in the place of peace, in the place of peace. Isaiah chapter 9, the prophecy of Jesus, uh, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Sorry, that's verse 7. You know, he's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. That's verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9. So David is, this, this last picture, these last two pictures that, that David is showing us in his life is the picture of our next age, the picture that we are headed to, a place where the king of peace ultimately reigns. But how we get there is not going to be easy. There's going to be a lot of bloodshed. There's going to be a lot of division. There's going to be a lot of, of attacks on this present age. And so here's what that means for you, Christian. If you are facing temptations to disavow the Lord Jesus Christ, welcome to this present age. If you are being tempted or, or led away 
from the authority and the lordship of Jesus. Well, welcome to this present age. It doesn't mean that you're unsaved. It just means that you're going to have to fight through. You're going to have to endure to the end. And the good news is that God is with you and will not give up on you, right? But the point is that just because David's kingdom is coming to an end and Solomon's kingdom is coming to a fruition does not mean that everybody's going to be on board with it. And you got to know that too in our present age, in the age of redemption that we are in right now, the church age, if you will, where the king is on the throne, he's building his kingdom, and yet there's going to be still attacks on that kingdom. There's still going to be divisions on that kingdom. There's still going to be people who fight against the Lord and try to lead people astray. So let's get into the text because I can't talk anymore about that. All right. First Kings chapter one, verse one. Now, King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for my Lord, the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my Lord, the king may be warm. Okay. Just continuing. So they sought for a beautiful young woman. They kind of had, I guess, a beauty pageant in the ancient world. Let's find uh, King David, a nice, beautiful young woman. They sought throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. What the heck is this about? (laughs) Pastor Tim, what is all this about? David is old, ladies and gentlemen. He can't get warm, okay? And they search for this pretty girl to lie with him and then he doesn't have sex with the girl. Why is this there? Why is this passage there? Here's why. It's a simple reminder of this inevitable fact. Everyone gets old. Everyone gets weak. And everyone loses their vitality. The fact that she's beautiful and young and that David doesn't sleep with her, I don't think it's a testament to David's purity because he still had concubines. I think it's a testament to David's frailty. He's old. He's done. He can't do this stuff anymore. And the truth is for every single one of us, we are mortal. We all get old and die. If there's one thing that you've got to hear from these two, these first four verses of first Kings, it is this, your life comes to a weakened end. Paul talks about that, that in talking about the resurrection, we're we're like seeds sown in the ground. We're sown in, um, mortality. We're sown in shame. We're sown in disgrace. You get old. You lose your senses. You lose your strength. You start stop building muscle and start gaining fat. Anybody know that you can you grow taller for 18 to 20 years and then you start to grow wider for the rest of your years. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And here's the te- here's the deal from First Kings. Even David did. Even David who killed giants, conquered kingdoms, built the nation. Even he grew old and grew feeble. Father time is still undefeated. Yes, Tom Brady, I'm talking to you. He will win. I don't know when he's going to win for you, but he will win. What are we to make of this? What is this telling us? What is it teaching us? Here's the important theme. Here's the important question. What are you passing on? What are you passing on that's not that's not about you? And that is one of David's sort of great failures in the in his in the record of his life he didn't handle the next generation well he lost his children he was the ultimate millennial parent he was the ultimate give him a trophy for a participating parent he never disciplined them he allowed them to go on spring break with their friends and he never asked any questions and the end of david's life reminds us that we all grow feeble weak and old and that life is not about what we accomplish in our time alone but what we pass on to the generation behind us 
Yes, it is our job to invest in that next generation. I talked about this on our, in our church service on Sunday, passing wisdom on the next generation. If we don't do it, the next generation is going to be ill-equipped for the truth that they need to handle the life that they are going to be facing with all kinds of questions, more difficult questions than ever before, especially in the cultural West. And we, older Christians and parents especially, have got to pass things on to help them navigate these issues with truth that will undergird them and empower them. I bring you to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them, in the, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And then I thought about this question. Um, provoke, right? How, how, do we, how do we provoke our children? How do we do that? I've got a couple of answers for you, and these are answers you probably want to write down. We provoke our children by providing zero discipline. If you don't discipline your children, you are provoking them to anger. I remember reading about a study that a social, social, a socialization study of children where they put them in a playground with no fence and they put the, you know, the, the, the toys and the play areas in the middle and the children, when there was no fence gathered closer to the middle, then they put the fence up and it was amazing how the children started to spread out. In other words, children need boundaries or creates fear. If they don't have established strong boundaries from parents, they will, they will be maladjusted in society. They won't be healthy. Another way that we provoke our children is overprotection. When you're a helicopter parent, always in your kid's business, not just, you, you provide too much discipline. You don't just ask questions. You actually go to the event with them. You, you don't just bring them to youth. You need to be part of the youth ministry. Like that's overprotection. That's over-involvement. Give them room. And let them make some mistakes. Give them some leeway. Put them on a, sh a leash, a medium leash, right? But some parents are just so overly protective of their children, they don't, they don't let them breathe. And I think that that provokes them to anger. Another way is impossible expectations, where, where we just have, you know, this idea that he has, he's got to be a straight-A a straight student. He's got to have tons, or she's got to have tons of achievements. She's got to be in every activity possible and every extracurricular event possible because she's got to get into an Ivy League school and she's got to graduate. And isn't today's Ivy League education showing you that that is a false idol? I'm not, I'm not criticizing kids going to Ivy League schools. We have some deep enders. I met you a couple of weeks ago that go to Ivy League schools. Good for you. Be Christian in that society. But let us not let, let us not put that on a pedestal that says, now my kids are worth something because I've made them accomplish all these achievements. Impossible expectations. You'll exasperate your children. Ridiculing them. That's another way that we provoke our children. Sarcasm. Coarse joking. Telling them they're no good. Making fun of their appearance, making sure that they know, making sure that they feel worse about what they're going through by, you know, chastising them. Um, you know, some, sometimes parents will, when, a, when one of their friends is, is criticizing them, they'll jump on board with the friend and criticize their own kids. That's disgraceful. You got to defend your kids. The opposite, of course, is to completely defend your kids and never let them just kind of work it out amongst friends. And, and going back to overprotection, when you call the, the friend's parent because the, the friend made fun of your kid, I mean, that's overprotection. Let your kids have those, those difficult challenges with people. Let them have difficult challenges with educators and with coaches and with, and with other adults because they need, to, they need to strengthen those sociological muscles and be able to react better and mature. Another way that we provoke children's favoritism, when you 
uh, elevate one child over others. And listen to me, Christian parents. If you've got one particular child who is more into the Lord than the rest of the children, be mindful that you don't favor that child. You don't love your children based on how much they love God. You love your children because it is commanded. You must love them and raise them and discipline them all. Don't take it easy on the kid who's really into church and then be hard on the kid who's not into church. That's that's the number one way to drive that kid who doesn't love church right out. Favoritism, another way, ignoring them. And this is in the pursuit of your career advancement, in the pursuit of your own accomplishments or, or just your own, you know, in single parenthood life, your own love life. And you ignore time with the children. Spend time with them. The last couple of nights, uh, my, my wife and I have sat down with our youngest because our older two work. And we've just been playing Uno and it's been hilarious. It has been fun. It's been life-giving. And, and we see getting him off that screen is so essential to his socialization with us. And just to have that time where nobody's staring at the screen anymore, but we're just having a fun time with each other. And then lastly, and this was a big one. Are you ready? This is how you provoke your children. Hypocrisy. Christian parents pay attention very carefully. If you are a hypocrite and your kids see it, Uh, they will most likely not be a part of the faith when they grow older. Now, let me give you some brackets about this because I I totally hear some of you saying, well, I can't be a perfect parent. I can't. I just make mistakes. Of course you do. We all do. And I do too. I am a pastor. I've been a vocational pastor for 20 years. I still make sinful mistakes in front of my children. But I will never forget. I read a book. It's called uh, Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller. Phenomenal book about this guy's very dysfunctional childhood. Anyway, when he grew up, he made a vow that he would never get married. He didn't make a vow to God, but he just made a vow to himself. I'll never get married because I don't want to ruin children. Well, eventually he found love, and then the woman wanted to have children. So what does he do? He's a writer. He's a researcher. He researches how to not mess up your children's lives if you're a Christian. So he researched the lives of children who were born in the faith, but left the faith or stayed faithful, those two groups. Kids who were born or raised in the faith, one group left, one group stayed in the faith. He wanted to know what was the difference so that he would do the right thing and keep his kids in the faith. Do you know what he found? It astounded him. The children who stayed faithful to Christ past their childhood years had one thing in common. Are you ready for this, parents? It wasn't that their parents were perfect. It was that when their parents made mistakes and sinned, they acknowledged it to their children. And they even apologized. Now, they apologized for sin. They didn't apologize for being a disciplinarian. They didn't apologize for being stern. They didn't apologize for having rules. But they, when they messed up, when they overreacted, when they swore, or they, maybe they overdisciplined, or they did something that was just carnal, they apologized and they confessed. And they let their kids know, dad or mom is still a work in progress. We still need Jesus. This is how you provoke your children to anger. With hypocrisy, when you when you when you act better than you really are, and 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 the the ones who left the church, Donna Miller says, were parents who never admitted they were wrong, and even when they were blatantly wrong, they acted like they weren't. Now, again, it's not a total lack of discipline and authority; it's maintaining the ability to say, "Yes, I'm in charge, but I still make mistakes." That's a powerful lesson. David did not do that. I bring you back to 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. Take a look with me. Now, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted him, saying, I will be king. And he prepared himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father, now notice this line in verse 6, his father David had never, never at any time 
displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Ladies and gentlemen, can you imagine what your parent, what your children would become if you never asked them, what are you doing? This is what David did. This is his great failure. He never asked Adonijah, what, what are you doing here? And he never <laughs> disciplined. By the way, let me put that back on the screen. He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. Okay, a couple of things that we're supposed to see here. Adonijah technically is next in line to the throne. So far, David's children go like this. Shemiah, who died, and we don't know how, but he was the older, he died. And then Amnon, who raped Tamar and was killed by Absalom, who led a rebellion, and then he was killed by Joab. And next in line to the throne would be Adonijah, this handsome man. And good for David. He's a handsome guy, and he keeps producing handsome children. Um, but, 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 but David doesn't discipline them, and this is his great failure. We should not dismiss the fact by the way, that, that scripture points out David's failure. Again, we don't worship these people as God, but we do follow their examples for good and we unfollow their examples for bad, right? Now, don't miss the fact that it says that Adonijah was a handsome man. His appearance, his outward appearance was attractive. Now, what, what this often goes hand in hand with in the life of David's children, especially, is pride, rebellion, and ultimately division and disruption. This, of course, was Satan's problem in heaven. He was beautiful. He was adorned with several jewels, the Bible says. He was perfect in beauty. And all that beauty went to his head, and he decided to be like God. He decided to be over God. And so what we are going to see here is Adonijah actually follows the trajectory of Satan. And I want to show you this next verse. Watch this. Verse 7. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But, verse 8 says, Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Rhea, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. What's important about this verse? It shows us something about Adonijah. He knew who to pick off from David's kingdom. He knew that Joab and David had a lot of disagreements. He knew that Abiathar was ultimately originally a priest under Saul's kingdom. He knew who to go after. Can I tell you this? Your spiritual enemy knows who to go after. Do you know who they are? The ones whose hearts are not truly with David. The ones whose hearts are on the fence with Jesus. Those are the ones the devil goes after. It's not the ones who are sold out. Mm -mm. He'll bring trouble to them. But the ones who he tries to mislead, the ones who he tries to fill with lies and mistruths, are, are the ones who are kind of like in the church kind of and not in the church. And ladies and gentlemen, if you were a parent and you're kind of in the church kind of but not kind of in the church, and you kind of, well, are we going to go? Maybe we're not going to go. Look, that's the number one way to make sure that your kids get picked off by the spirit of Adonijah. That's the number one way. My point is, if you're going to be a great parent, if you're going to raise mighty men and women of God, be absolutely devoted to the church. I want to give my parents some props because all three of their children love the Lord, okay? And I'm in the ministry, and we grew up in a house where church was a non-negotiable, and we were there every single week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night Bible study. I mean, it was like non-negotiable, and my parents not only... Uh, were in the church, they served in the church, and they, they used their gifts in the church, and they led, and they gave to the church. And we watched this our whole lives, and I believe it's the reward of the righteous who serve the Lord Jesus Christ that their children come to faith later in life. They may wander, but they will come back. 
Anyway, important point here about Adonijah. He picks the ones off who are kind of loosely affiliated with David. And that's exactly what our spiritual enemy, the roaring lion, wants to do to our children. Don't be loosely affiliated to our true David, Jesus Christ. Be one of his mighty men. Be one of his right-handers. Right, one of those people who are on the inside. I'm telling you, your children are at stake here. Anyway, moving on. Verse 9 says this. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone. Now, there you go. The serpent stone. What's the picture of the devil in Genesis chapter 1? Oh, sorry. Genesis chapter 3? The serpent. Yeah, right. So here he is at the serpent stone. This is an ancient artifact, actually, ancient uh, cultic uh, altar that was still around in David's time. And uh, excavators say that it had the symbol of a snake on the top of it. And so he goes down to that cultic site and he offers uh, fattened calf and fattened cattle and oxen and sheep. Anyway, it's beside Enrogel and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons and all the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan. He did not. He did not invite Benaiah or the mighty men or Solomon, his brother. Again, he's dividing. He's doing exactly what uh, Absalom did. His good looks, his charm. He just decides, I need to make a big deal out of me. I'm next in line. I'm going to take the throne. Now, here's how the story continues. Verse 11. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Thank God for Nathan. Here's what he does. He says, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to the king and say to him, did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servants saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. Why then is Adonijah king? Okay, Nathan goes to work on behalf of Solomon. Now, again, it was in, uh, it's in First Chronicles where God, David says, God revealed to me, the Lord revealed to me that Solomon would be the one who would follow me. And Solomon's 10th line. So a couple things about that. Solomon's 10th in line, Adonijah was fourth in line. God skips over four other guys, five other guys, sorry, to get to Solomon and say he's going to be the king. By the way, Solomon is the infamous son of Bathsheba, the second born son, because the first one died in judgment. But the second born son's name is Solomon. He is the son or the offspring of that adulterous now marital relationship. And here's the point that God picks the ones we wouldn't pick, right? God picks the ones we would not pick. You would pick Adonijah because he's, he's the natural choice. He's handsome. Looks like he can gather some chariots around. It looks like he knows how to talk to generals and lead. Obvious choice. No, God says, no, I don't, I don't choose the ones that you choose. I choose the ones that I want. And he chooses to make Solomon the, the king, the, 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 the offspring of Bathsheba. It's a beautiful story of God's grace. But it's also a picture for us. Nathan goes to work on behalf of Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is the instrument that brings the kingdom of peace into the world, the kingdom of Solomon into the world. I want to I suggest something to you. As we have done all season long, David points us to our true David, Jesus Christ. So the question then becomes, who is Bathsheba in the story? And I'm going to tell you who she is in the story. In this story, Bathsheba is a picture of the church. She is. She's got a questionable or sinful past. She's got a notorious reputation. Yet she is chosen by God. Yes, 
This is a beautiful picture. And Nathan the prophet goes to work on her behalf. What has God done, according to Ephesians chapter 4, concerning his church? He has raised up pastors and prophets and teachers and evangelists and apostles to equip the church to be strong in doctrine, to do the work of ministry, to bring into this earth the kingdom of Christ. And Bathsheba has a prophet on her side, just like you and I do. The prophet is the Lord's prophets, the Lord's leaders, the Lord's pastors, the Lord's elders, people like me, who empower the church to fulfill her God-given mission, though she might have an immoral past, though she might have a notorious reputation, she is chosen by God. God does not choose perfect people. He chooses sinful people. Why? Because sinful people are all he can find. Anyway, here's the big point. The church has a sinful past and a divinely appointed present. Yeah. The church has a sinful past and a divinely appointed present. And and you need to know this, as is illustrated here by Nathan, that, that you... Because of the work of the Holy Spirit, because of the work of the cross first, and then obviously the Holy Spirit after that, you have access into the presence of God. I give you a couple of verses to point this out. First, John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now that word, according to his will, that might shock some of you, but look at what it says in John 6, 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is the will of God? The will of God is to look on the Son and believe in him. And then John 14, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. And then whatever you ask in my name, okay, that is an important phrase because in my name does not mean abracadabra. It does not, it's not a magical phrase. In my name means you stand in my character. You stand in my reputation. He says, if you ask that in my reputation, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Again, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That is the promise of God's church, of the Lord's church from the Lord himself. We have access into the throne. So, Let's back up and let's paint the picture again. Here's Adonijah following the ways of the serpent, following the ways of Lucifer, following the ways of Absalom, his beauty going to his head. He's dividing the, the kingdom. He's picking off those who are loosely affiliated to David. And there's division. There's, there's a disruption to the kingdom. And the point being made here is that as Christians, while we see this happening in our church age, good news, we've got someone on our side who wants us to go into the throne of heaven and appeal our case before the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And the Holy Spirit helps us do this. And the church is there to help you do this. Pastors are there to help you do this. Prophets, evangelists, apostles, they're there to embolden your prayers and your faith before your Lord and Savior. Ladies and gentlemen, divisions are bound to come. Sinfulness is bound to abound in the end times. We do not lose hope. We put our faith in Jesus who boldens us and strengthens us through his church to go into that throne room and ask in his name for what we need. Amen. I don't know if it can get any better than that for our hope. Amen. Okay, let's continue. First Kings chapter one, verse 14. Then while you are speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. So Nathan is saying, listen, I'm not going to have you do this alone. I'm going to be there speaking with you. Now, Nathan is a picture of something. He is the Lord's prophet 
but he is also a picture of a prophet filled with the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, this is what the Holy Spirit does. And this is why you want to find yourself a Holy Spirit-filled church with a Holy Spirit-filled leader. A pastor filled with the Holy Spirit does three things. Are you ready? Number one, he encourages you to enter boldly into the presence of Jesus. Number two, he gives you words to say because that's what the Holy Spirit does. And number three, he emboldens your faith in the will of God. This is what Nathan does, inspired by the Holy Spirit on behalf of Bathsheba, the notorious sinful woman. And I don't want you to think that you have to go to God through a pastor. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that spirit-filled pastors will embolden your faith to enter into God's presence. If there is a spiritual leader over your life, actually, and, and this is an important point, who creates a wall between you and the Savior, he ain't doing his job. Mm -mm. It is the job of a pastor to tear down that wall between the saint and the Savior. I don't need you to come to me to get to Christ. I am here to tell you, you don't need me to get to Christ. Now, Christ has given me to you. The pastors are given, Ephesians 4 again, given to the body to raise you up and mature you, but you don't need me to get your prayers answered. You have Jesus. Goodness, I got to keep going. Sorry. Verse 15 <laughs> says this. So, so Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old and Bishag the Shunammite was attending the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king. And the king said, what do you desire? She said to him, my lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, verse 19, fattened cattle, sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest and Job the commander of the army. But Solomon, your son, he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it shall come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. So she goes boldly because Nathan tells her to do so. And then this is what it says, verse 22. While she was still speaking, Nathan lives up to his end of the bargain. Nathan the prophet came in and they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when, now, now notice how this goes down. She's talking to the king. Nathan the prophet, filled with the Holy Spirit, comes in to support her. And they told the king, Nathan is here. Uh, and, and he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord, the king, have you said Adonijah shall remain after me and shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and sacrificed oxen, fat, and cattle, and sheep in abundance. And has invited all the king's sons and commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. And behold, they are eating and drinking before him, saying, Long live King Adonijah. Verse 26, But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, notice who's missing King David, the people who are most devoted to you, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, your servant, and your servant uh, Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king? And you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him? In other words, we just want to know, what's the deal here, king? Then King David answered, call Bathsheba to me. So she came to the king's presence and stood before the king. What am I trying to point out here? I want you to see what I'm trying to point out. Nathan comes in after she approaches. She makes the approach to the king first. Then Nathan supports her in that approach. And guess what the response from the king is? Put it big on the screen. Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, 
the God of Israel saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I would do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, may my Lord, the king, King David, live forever. What am I trying to show you? This is a beautiful picture of how we approach God's throne. Okay, pay attention. Bathsheba is sent into the throne room to approach David. Nathan, the prophet, supports her in this. Then he comes and he gives her words to say. And then he backs up those words to the king. And then those words, check this out, bring Bathsheba closer to David. This is a picture for us as New Testament believers. I want to talk to the people who are out there saying, I don't know how to pray. Okay, start praying. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you pray, to give you words to say, and then start praying and step out in faith. And the Holy Spirit will meet you in that place. And this is the best part. He will bring you closer to the king. That's his job. His job is to exalt Jesus in your life. And his job, according to John 14 and 16, his job is to remind you of what Jesus said. And his job is there is to convict you, to empower you, and to embolden you before the Lord so that that boldness in the presence of the Lord comes with you into the world. And this applies so powerfully to our present context where parents are being undermined, authority is being shunned, the disreputable are, 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 are criticizing the honorable, where the young are lording over the elder. This is so important. Where are you going to get your backbone, parents? Where are you going to get your strength to correct and discipline your children, to teach and lead them, to not be led astray by them in the spirit of the sage? You're going to get your strength and you're going to get your power from the Holy Spirit as you practice the presence of God through the Holy Spirit and let him give you words to say before Jesus. You can develop it. I know some of you are saying, um, I don't know, I don't know. Yet you can develop this. You you just got to start. You just got to start. All right, let's get it back into the text. Verse 32, call, David said, call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Joanna. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, take with you the servants of the Lord. Have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring it down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live the king Solomon. Long live king Solomon. Uh, you shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Verse 36, uh, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. In other words, may he do greater things than you've done, David. And that's exactly what Jesus wants for us in this age right now. So David starts to put things in place. Things start to move forward for for Solomon. Um, and look at what happens when they, when they call Solomon, uh, as, as King verse 38. So Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, but uh, and the chair, a lot of names, sorry. And the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok, the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon and they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon, verse 40. And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. In other words, they 
worship the king of peace and it disrupts the earth. Again, another powerful picture for us. How is the church going to make inroads into a, a secular uh, country, a growing secular country? We're going to praise the Lord. We're going to lift up Jesus. We are going to exalt him and it will split the earth. I'm telling you, this is how it has always happened. When the church worships Jesus and glorifies Jesus and magnifies Jesus, both in their lives, obviously, and in their preaching and in their singing and in their working, the earth shakes, ladies and gentlemen, the earth shakes. Awesome. Let's continue. Wrapping this up. Verse 49. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, each one his own way. And Adonijah feared at Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. So Adonijah knows this. I'm dead. Nathan, Benaiah, the, the best men of David are on Solomon's side. I'm dead. He goes and takes hold of the horns of the altar saying, this is like, a, this is like him feigning one last attempt at devotion to God. It's kind of interesting. Anyway. Uh, skipping ahead, it says, and Solomon heard about it, that he had taken hold of, uh, of the horns of the altar. And uh, Solomon says, if he will show himself a worthy man, verse 52, not one of his hair shall fall to the ground, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. Verse 53, so King Solomon sent and they brought him down from the altar and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. And it would appear, and we're going to end here in First uh, Kings, because to continue would actually make this the life of Solomon, not the life of David. But the point here is that Solomon says, look, there's going to be peace as long as you are a man of peace. Eventually, I'll give you the, the spoiler alert. He tries to take a wife uh, from uh, one of David's harem, I think, if I remember correctly. And Solomon says, look, you're trying to usurp the throne, and he has him put to death. And then at, at David's admonition, Solomon puts Joab to death. This is, this is how the end of the story of the transition from David to Solomon goes down. Uh, David on his deathbed says to Solomon, you got you to take vengeance on Joab because he put peaceful men to death in times of peace. And then he also usurped my authority. And then you've got to hold strong to the throne. And he ends up putting Adonijah to death. Now, some of you might be saying, I thought Solomon was the man of peace. I thought his name meant peaceable. What's with all the blood? Okay, let me tell you what it's all about. Again, it's a picture of the end of the age, the end of this present age. There's going to be a lot of blood. There's going to be a lot of blood. You don't get peace without blood. Let me put it on the screen for you. Revelation chapter 15, 19, sorry, verse 15. From his mouth, from Jesus' mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God, of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's get something straight about peace. It does not come without blood. People can talk all they want about being nice, about bringing a calm to the world, but it's all a bunch of nonsense. If someone does not execute swift punishment on the evildoer and deter further evil with strong, righteous hands of leadership and justice. Who does that? Jesus does that. See, without blood, you don't get the end of World War II. Without blood, you don't stop terrorist plots. Without blood, egomaniacal dictators and, and uh, serial killers go on killing sprees. Blood is required for peace. The blood of Jesus brings us peace. But one day the blood, the sword of Jesus will bring blood to the nations and establish the kingdom of peace. This is how the book that we love, the Bible ends, ladies and gentlemen. The true king of kings will come and execute final judgment, exposing the hearts of all and establishing a final and everlasting 
peace. And we were looking forward to that, right? But while we were looking forward to that, what do we do? We pray. We go to the throne. We rely upon the leadership. We put ourselves wholly into the kingdom of God. We get close to our true David Jesus. We don't straddle the fence. We get closer to him. We practice the presence of God, getting bold in his presence so that we are bold in the presence of unbelievers. And the kingdom of peace will be uh, realized and expanded through us. I, I believe this with all my heart. Let me close out with a couple points uh, about this. Number one, the kingdom of peace is coming. Number one, the enemy is bent on division through deception, as we saw with Adonijah. Number two, we have access with boldness to the throne, right? Ephesians 3, 11, I think about that passage, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Hebrews 4, 16, let us, uh, let us draw close to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have boldness. In the midst of all the division in the world, we have access into the throne room of heaven. Let's use it. Number three, uh, godly prophets and people infuse our boldness. Get yourself a pastor who teaches you how to practice these things. Get yourself a leader. Get yourself people who encourage you to enter into God's presence and don't discourage it. And then number four, it's going to be messy along the way. <laughs> it's going to be messy along the way. Yeah. David's succession looked a lot like the successions of, uh, successions of worldly kingdoms around him, but there was a difference. God was guiding the process the entire time. And he guided the process to a woman you would not have expected, and a son you would not have expected, the son of Bathsheba, the notorious sinful woman. At the end of the day, parents, leaders, adults, you can have this confidence. You can have this boldness. You need to lead your, chid, your kids. You need to lead them. You need to empower them and strengthen them and uphold them. And that's the episode. That's the episode. And I, I, I have something in mind to end this episode. First, let me just, again, rehash timhatchlive.com, timhatchlive across all of our social media channels, including now TikTok. Stay with me for a second. We're going to close this out with a beautiful video. I saw, I ran across this video. I just thought it was so beautiful. This is, I, we're talking about parents. We're talking about raising them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And I thought, wow, there's not many videos. This is a video of a child who's in the back seat, in the child seat. And a child that you can see has been led to worship the Lord Jesus. And it is so cute. It is so precious. And uh, I think we'll close out this episode of The Deep End with this video. Watch this.